thanks Lisa and Elisa. For those of you who don't know, Elisa is our niece. So she grew up in Uganda, and uh, she's kind of named a little bit after Lisa, her aunt. So thanks so much for singing for us this morning. What a beautiful song. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, open up to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John in chapter 11. As you guys know, we've been doing a verse-by-verse study through this incredible Gospel of John, and we've kind of taken a little break right here at the end of John chapter 11 to take a closer look at the death and the resurrection of the man Lazarus. I believe that in the miracle of Lazarus and in his death and resurrection, we see a picture of redemption with such clarity that we decided to take five weeks, and on Reformation Sunday, we kicked off a series entitled Lazarus and the Tulip. So we're going to be talking a little bit about the doctrines of grace, and we're going to illustrate those doctrines of grace from the story of Lazarus, and then I'm going to be trying to demonstrate a lot of the teaching of the doctrines of grace through the Gospel of John. So that's what we're doing. We're right in the middle. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Uganda, and then last week, we did Psalm 100. So it's been a couple of weeks since we've been back here in our main text of John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. The Apostle John writes this, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes, and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Father, we want to ask this morning that you would bless the preaching of your word through this text and other places in your word today, and that you would enlighten us to understand the doctrines of grace. Lord, we don't want to look at a man-made doctrine today. We want to look at the saving, atoning work of Jesus Christ. We want to understand it in its, in its proper place as given in Scripture and how that practically applies and how we are to be saved by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us alone. And so we pray that you would be glorified in our time together this morning as we look at these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century changed Christianity forever. Roused to action by the corruption and the abuses that they saw in the Roman Catholic Church at the time, Various visionary reformers of the likes of Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox spearheaded a movement that transformed Christianity and eventually led to the emergence of Protestantism that we so enjoy today. The reformers were guided by the conviction that the church of their day had drifted away from the essential original teachings of Christianity especially in regard to what the church was teaching about salvation, how people can be forgiven of their sin through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and receive eternal life with God. The Reformation sought to reorient Christianity 
to the original message of Jesus and the early church. And as you well know, it was on October the 31st, 1517, when the Augustinian monk Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses, or complaints, on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. This list of 95 things was really a rebuke against Roman Catholic doctrine, and it called for a radical reform of the church. And because of the providential timing of the Gutenberg Press, this list was copied and distributed throughout Germany and then the rest of Europe. The Protestant Reformation had begun and eventually would drastically change the face of Western civilization, socially, politically, economically, and educationally. Terry Johnson, the author of The Case for Traditional Protestantism, wrote this, quote, The Protestant Reformation had a profound effect upon all aspects of society, but its chief effect was religious. Luther and the Protestant reformers brought much needed reforms to the church. Do you appreciate congregational singing? Then thank the reformers for reviving it. Do you believe that the Bible should be read in the language of the people? Then thank Martin Luther and his German Bible for paving the way for a host of new translations of Hebrew and Greek scriptures into the vernacular. Is your soul spiritually fed by preaching? Then thank the reformers for restoring the preached word to its central place in the life of the people of God. Do you believe in the ministry of every member of the church? Then thank the reformers for emphasizing it. Do you know the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Then thank Martin Luther for rescuing the biblical answer to that question from the medieval innovations by which it had been obscured, close quote. And all that Terry Johnson is doing in that quote is just saying, look, the Reformation changes everything. I mean, it doesn't change the Bible. The Bible was always the Bible, and salvation was always by grace. But the church had drifted to the side and began to be focused on different things than the gospel itself. And so the Reformation brought back true believers to an understanding of the gospel and the practice of being a true Christian. And so as the Reformation continued into the 17th century, important doctrines continued to be clarified. I would say that the 16th century was about establishing the five solas, scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And once the five solas were established, there needed to be further clarification and a return to what the Bible teaches about salvation or soteriology. And this is where the Reformed doctrines of grace come into view in the 17th century in that well-known acrostic of TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And so what I'm saying is that the, the foundation was set with the five solas, and on top of the five solas, we now have the doctrines of grace even further clarifying the beauty of salvation. And so in our series of Lazarus and the Tulip, we've been studying these doctrines of grace, and we've been seeing them from various texts, but I've been trying to primarily show you how these truths are taught in the Gospel of John. 
way before God used Luther to reform the Catholics, he used Jesus to bring about a reformation, if you will, to the Jews. And it wasn't so much a reformation as it was an outright call to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the only Savior of the world. This is not a new doctrine. This is the new covenant being ratified in the teaching of Christ and sealed with his blood. And so in the Gospel of John, we've been looking at seven wonders or seven signs that Jesus performs throughout this Gospel that all point to his divinity and to the fact that he is the Son of God. And these seven miracles that Jesus did are all pictures of who he is as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And all these miracles that Jesus did point to that fact, but this miracle that Jesus did in raising Lazarus from the dead is of greatest magnitude. This miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus is the pinnacle of all of Jesus's earthly ministry. I know that's a big statement, and I want to tell you why. This miracle is the peak of the mountain. It's the zenith of Christ's influence. It's the crowning point of Jesus' earthly ministry. And in this context, this is where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. It's the last miracle he does before his crucifixion, and it has great significance. And so we've been affirming how we can see in the story of Lazarus and the rest of the teachings of John and the Bible, these doctrines of grace. We've affirmed total depravity, which teaches that there is no good in you. We're all sinners by nature and by birth. And because we are dead in our trespasses and sins, we cannot save ourselves. Before Christ, we were in bondage to our sin. We stood condemned. We were all under the wrath of God. We were at enmity with him. We hated Christ and we served our father, the devil. And then we moved from that truth of total depravity into unconditional election. And we found that doctrine to also be true. We affirm that unconditional election teaches that God does not foresee any action or condition performed by us that persuades him to save us. Rather, election depends on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he chooses according to his divine will. Last time we looked at that, we looked at John 1, 12 and 13, where we read, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we talked about how that passage just clearly teaches that you're saved not based on your birth, not based on your ethnicity, not based on your bloodline, not based on your will, not based on your effort. You were saved by the work of Jesus Christ on his glorious cross. You were saved not by the will of man, but by the will of God. If you're totally depraved, then you couldn't choose God in your dead condition. He had to regenerate you and make you alive. And yes, then you respond to that grace, but the only reason you respond is because God elected you from eternity past. The Bible says he unconditionally chose you before the foundation of the world that you would be holy and blameless in him. It's all grace. God initiated this grace God predetermined this grace. God predestined this grace. And the only reason you love today is because he first loved you. 
And so we've seen total depravity, unconditional election, and today we're moving to that third part of TULIP, the L, limited atonement. So in your notes there, in your bulletin, you'll see the big number three, limited atonement. That's where we are today. And I want to give you uh, a couple of uh, sentences that define this doctrine, okay, how to understand this doctrine. Before we look at that definition, let me just say that limited atonement is probably the most controversial of these doctrines. When people debate limited atonement, they get really mad, like spitting mad. Like they get blue in the face and they just argue over this particular one. There's oftentimes an uneasiness and a confusion about what is limited atonement. Does the Bible really teach a limited atonement? And when Calvinists speak of limited atonement, those who oppose that view express their opinion of an unlimited atonement, which sounds more loving and inclusive. And even some professing Calvinists pull back on this point and they say, well, I'm a Calvinist, but I'm a four-point Calvinist. Or I'm a five-point Calvinist with a little what? A little L. Have you, have, have you been in theological conversations? Right, I'm a, just count me in as a little, I'm four and a half. And that may be all fine. I'm not, I'm not against that position if that's where you are. That's just not what I hold to. And so as I, as I share with you this morning, I want to define this for you the best that I can, all right? In your blank there, your first blank, if you are taking notes, limited atonement summarizes what the Bible teaches about the purpose for Christ's death on the cross and what his life and his death and his resurrection actually accomplished. The cross was not a universal atonement making it possible for sinners to be saved, but rather it was an intentional atonement which accomplished redemption for the elect. Now, if that's a lot of words and you don't like theology, let me just make it really simple. What I'm saying is this. The atonement is not potential. It's purposeful. The atonement is not generic. It's specific. The atonement didn't just make it possible. It accomplished what Christ came to do. That's the argument I'll be trying to make as we understand this idea that I think is biblical of limited atonement. And so this doctrine is chiefly concerned about the original purpose, plan, or design of God in sending Christ into the world to die on the cross. Was it the Father's intent to save every individual in the world, or was it his intent to save some? That's the question we're asking. Did God, from eternity past, have a plan for the atonement of Christ by design to ensure the salvation of his people, or would that choice solely be left up to each individual? Now, in Isaiah 53, verse 8, it starts to shed some light on the fact that Jesus came to save God's people. In fact, Isaiah 53, 8 talks about how the Messiah will be cut off. That means he'll die out of the land of the living, living, he'll be stricken for the transgression of my people. So in Isaiah 53, that famous prophecy of Jesus coming, he's already saying, I'm going to send Christ to die for who? For my people. And then as we get into the New Testament, even in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21, the angel says to Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's always this focus when you get start talking about the atonement and why Christ came. God's going to send the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, for his people. The angel says he will save 
his people from their sin. This is a statement of confidence and of clear intentionality that God will save his people. God had a select people in mind. Jesus didn't come for all the Jews, and he didn't come for all the individuals of the world. He came to save his people. And we see a similar statement in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord, of, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people from their sins. And so what we're saying is, all throughout the Bible, there's this mentality of God chose his people. First, remember, he chose Israel. We, we talked a couple of weeks ago about how he chose Abraham, and then he chose Isaac, not Ishmael, and then he chose Jacob, not Esau. God's been doing this all along. This is not some new concept. God's always had the prerogative to choose whoever he wants for his own glory. And so God visits his people in the person of Christ. He redeems his people through Christ. And Christ's death was an actual atonement for the sins of God's elect people and will result that these and only these are going to be delivered from sin's penalty. In fact, turn with me to this passage, if you will. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 verses 38 and 39. And we see on the glorious day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches his first gospel message as a clear convert now and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says this in Acts 2, 38, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So who is the promise of salvation for? According to the end of verse 38, it is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So we have to understand that instead of using the words limited atonement, some want to use the word particular redemption, or the term definite atonement, which I'm totally fine with. Both of those phrases communicate that God has a select group in mind that he meant for the cross to accomplish salvation for his elect and not just to make it a possibility. Uh, let me try to illustrate this idea between potential and actual atonement in this way. When you're going to take a flight across the country, all right, and you're issued an airline ticket to take that flight, that airline ticket has your name on it. And if you're traveling internationally, it has your passport number also kind of attached to that. And that ticket is intended for you and for you alone. That, that ticket is not intended for everyone in the boarding area. That ticket is not intended for everybody in the airport. That ticket is not intended from, for everybody in the city of which you're departing. No, that ticket with your name on it is intended for you. That ticket which is issued before the flight is not a potential ticket. It's an actual ticket that enables you to board that flight. It is limited to only you. It is a particular ticket. It has a definite purpose. And the same is true with limited atonement. God elects you in eternity past. God issues you an entrance into heaven. God accomplished your fare through the currency of his son's blood. And he did not issue a ticket to every human being on the planet, but specifically for the elect. If Jesus died for sin in his death, 
that we must either understand this sacrifice to be in the place of all the sons of all the people in the world generically, which would lead to universalism, or it must be in the place of the sons of his elect people who alone are saved. So did he die for all universally, or did he die for you, if you are in Christ specifically? The terminology of Christ's sacrifice in the Bible makes it clear, I believe, that he died with an intentionality of just you. I mean, just listen to all the words that describe salvation. Okay, listen to this. Christ redeemed his people. That word redeemed means he bought them back. You don't potentially redeem something. You either buy it back or you don't. When you think about the word sacrifice or propitiation, which means that it appeased the wrath of God against sin. I mean, the sacrifice of Christ either made propitiation of God's wrath or it didn't. If you're saved, it did. If you're not saved, then in no way is God's wrath removed from your account. How about the word reconciliation? Christ reconciled his people, which means what? He established peace between a holy God and sinful man. And for those who don't repent and they don't believe, there is no reconciliation. Christ made atonement for our sins, which means that he wiped away our sins so that we could be in a relationship with our creator. And the atonement is only applied to the elect. I mean, in what way does a sinner in hell benefit from the atonement? We could say, well, common grace. And I'm like, yeah, but common grace could be shown from God's character and not specifically from the cross. And I would still say, well, common grace still didn't save them from hell. So they didn't really benefit from common grace eternally. What we're saying is the atonement is applied to the elect. The atonement was only meant for the elect. The atonement has no saving value for anybody except the elect. Otherwise, nothing was atoned for. So all of this terminology of redemption, propitiation, reconciliation, and atonement all points to the fact that Christ's work on the cross was not a hypothetical salvation for hypothetical believers, but a real and definite salvation for God's own chosen people. We could say it this way. The atonement of Christ was not sloppy. It was specific. It was not ambiguous. It was accurate. It was not potential, it was particular. And so this is what limited atonement means. The question again that we're asking is, did Christ come to save every individual person in the world or did he come to save his own? Well, turn with me to Matthew 20, 28. Matthew 20, 28, as you contemplate that question, did Jesus come to save every individual in the world or did he come to save his own? Matthew 20 Verse 28 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for every individual in the world. Is that what it says? You, got, you must not have gotten there yet. Because it doesn't say that he came to offer his life for every individual in the world. When we talk about God's love, then you can go generic. Yes, he loves the world. Of course he does. But when you talk about the atonement of Christ, you've got to narrow that to the specificity of which God determined that it would be applied. And Jesus says here, he gave his life, not as a ransom for every individual in the world equally, but rather he says for many. And then that idea is this select group. Again, Jesus did not die for all, but for many. 
This is what this is saying. Look at Acts 20, 28. Acts chapter 20, 28. And I know, I know that I'm, I'm sensing that maybe you're in here and you're already like, man, I'm struggling with this Calvinistic pastor who thinks he knows everything about limited atonement. If that's you, let me just encourage you, just hear me out. Just like, just give me the privilege of working through the sermon, taking you to the text. So just at least follow my flow of thought. And at the end, if you want to come up here and shoot me down and hit me in the stomach and all that stuff, that's fine. All right, we'll, we'll duke it out later. But this, just, just hear me out. Stay with me, if you will, all right? So uh, Acts 20, 28 says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So Acts 20, 28 teaches that under Christ, shepherds are to care for God's church or God's people because he obtained them with his own blood. It doesn't say he obtained everybody with his own blood and therefore you're to care for everybody. No, you care for the church, those called out ones that he chose, that he saved, that he obtained with his own blood. Or turn with me to one more passage here in Romans 8, 29, and 30. We've been here a couple of times in this series. We like to call this passage the golden chain of redemption because it stretches from eternity past all the way to eternity future, and it's a very clear line of salvation across all of time. And what we read in Romans 8, 29, and 30 is this, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, notice again a select group, those whom he predestined, and we've already looked at Ephesians 1 that said he did that before the foundation of the world and before Jacob and Esau had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose and election may stand, just trying to build on some of that that we've talked about. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here's what he's saying. There's a particular redemption that was in the mind of God from eternity past that he predestined that would be glorified in eternity future. And then here on planet Earth, he calls you and he justifies you. And when he saves you, you're his. And he has a particular group of people in mind that he saved through the blood of his son. Now, this does not mean that a limit is placed on the value or on the merit of the atonement of Jesus Christ. It's common that we may say the atoning work of Christ is sufficient for all. Now, we would agree with that statement. Yes, the atoning work of Christ is sufficient of all. That is, its infinite value is sufficient to cover all the sins of all the people, of anyone that would ever live, If they would put their trust in Christ, they would receive that full measure of benefit of the atonement. It's sufficient for all, but it's only efficacious for the elect, meaning it only takes effect in those who've been predestined by the grace of God in eternity past that they would be called out of darkness into light, be justified, which is a forensic declaration of the fact that you've been given the righteousness of Christ, and that effect takes place in the individual that God has called out of darkness into light that they'll eventually be glorified. And so this is kind of what we're trying to comprehend. Like, how does all this work? I've I've really admired how Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, right, was, was a staunch Calvinist, and yet he preached the gospel of repentance to all who would come hear him preach. Yet he held 
very tightly to a limited view of the atonement. In fact, listen to one of these excerpts out of one of his sermons as he gets into discussing limited atonement. Here's what Spurgeon says, quote, We are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ because we say that Christ has not made satisfaction for all men, or all men would be saved. Now, our reply to this, on the other hand, is that our opponents limit it, we do not. So he's saying, as a Calvinist, I don't limit it, you Arminians limited it. Well, how can he say that? The Arminians say Christ died for all men. Ask them what they mean by it. Did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of all men? They say, no, certainly not. We ask them then the next question, did Christ die so as to secure the salvation of any man in particular? They answer no. They are obligated to admit this if they are consistent. They say no, if Christ has died that any man be, may be saved if. And so he's saying what an Arminian says is, the blood of Christ was not shed for anybody in particular, but everybody generically. And then an Arminian would say, Christ has died, and people may be saved if, and then Spurgeon stops right there and he says, and then they follow a certain condition of salvation. Now, who is it that limits the death of Christ? Why you do. You say that Christ did not die so as infallibly to secure the salvation of anybody. We beg your pardon? When you say we limit Christ's death, we say, no, my dear sir, it is you that do it. So in other words, he's saying, hey, if you're chosen in him before the foundation of the world, God's blood's applied to you, and there's really no limit on it. It, 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 it was given for a particular purpose and accomplished that purpose. But if you're an Arminian, then you would think, well, the blood of Christ is out there generically, but it's limited to those who repent and believe. And the, the challenge with that may be, well, you can only repent and believe if you're chosen. Because if you're chosen in him, then God makes you alive together with Christ. And so Spurgeon kind of ends this argument by saying, we say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man could number, who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. You are welcome to your atonement. You may keep it. We will never renounce ours for the sake of it. It's a part of what Spurgeon is saying is that he loves this biblical view of atonement and his estimation because it actually accomplishes something. It's not just potential, but it accomplishes something. And Arminian would say it's limited to man's choice of whether or not they choose to become a Christian or not. And so at the same time, it's also important to understand that the gospel is to be preached to everyone. So, so if I believe in limited atonement, I'm not saying I only preach to the elect. I mean, that's just silly, right? How do you know who's elect or who's not? And you guys know the other reference where Spurgeon says if he could, he'd pull up the, you know, the, the, the coattails of people and see if they had an E stamped on their chest or not. And if they had an E, then he'll only preach to them. No, you preach to everybody, right? The, the gospel is offered to everyone, but it only takes effect in the person who has been chosen in the person who believes. And the only way that you can believe because of total depravity is that you must be elected by God. And if you have been chosen by God, then he will make you alive in regeneration and you will indeed repent and place your faith in Jesus. And so the merit of the atonement of Christ is given to all who believe and all who repent of their sins, but you cannot unless God draws you to himself. And that's what we're seeing here taught in the Gospel of John.
So I've kind of tackled a few other places where limited atonement is taught, but I want to spend the rest of my time pulling this thread through the Gospel of John to where you see it through Christ's teaching in the Gospel of John as the champion of this doctrine of limited atonement. So bear with me, see what you think. You ready? Limited atonement in the Gospel of John. Number one, Jesus saves all those granted to him by the Father. Turn with me to John 6, 38 and 39. Jesus saves all those granted to him by the Father. Jesus' death does not guarantee salvation for every individual in the world. Jesus came to earth with a mission in mind, and his mission was to fulfill the will of the Father. And the Father did not grant Jesus every individual in the world. The Father granted Jesus a select group of people, and all those that the Father gave to the Son, he will save and raise them up on the last day. This is John 6, 38 and 39. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. In other words, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God's will is to save every individual in the world. Rather, it says it's God's will to save these people that he's chosen to give to the Son, and the Son in his mission does indeed save all those granted to him by the Father. Every person has life, but not every person has eternal life. Every person was created by God, but not every person has been recreated in Christ. The Father sent the Son to save those that he has given unto him. And not everyone can come unless they are called by the Father. Uh, look at John 6. You're already there. Look at verse 65. This is why Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And this word, can come, Jesus says no one can come unless it's granted to him by the Father. This word addresses the issue of ability. I remember as a kid, maybe you remember this in your third grade English class when I used to raise my hand and say, teacher, can I go to the restroom? And my teacher would lovingly admonish me and say, Adam, it's not about can you go, it's may you go. It's not an issue of ability, of course you can go. It's an issue of permission. May I go to the bathroom? Well, everyone may come, but not everyone can come. Everyone has been granted permission in the general call of the gospel, but only those who can come are those who have an internal call to the gospel. You don't have the ability to come unless it's been granted to you by the Father. The general call is for everybody. The internal call is only for the elect. So there's a general call saying, come to Christ, everyone. But only those that can respond are those who've been unconditionally elected before the foundation of the world, regenerated by the Spirit of God that moves as it will through each and every heart that it's called, and it calls you out. And so when it, when it comes to the story of Lazarus, you're saying, well, how does all this connect with Lazarus and his resurrection from the dead? Jesus raised him from the dead because it had been granted to him by the Father. Lazarus had no ability to come out of the grave. Many people could have called Lazarus, but only one voice of one person could truly elicit a response. And that was the voice of Jesus. Jesus called Lazarus. And whatever Jesus calls for, 
that has been granted to him by the Father will come. And Jesus saves all those that have been granted to him by the Father. And the Father gives and Jesus receives. And whom does the Father give to the Son? Those that he predestined before the foundation of the world. Well, let's look at another aspect of limited atonement in the Gospel of John. Number two, Jesus calls only his sheep. Jesus calls only his sheep to himself. Turn with me to John chapter 10, and we'll see here throughout this chapter that Jesus calls his sheep to himself. He does not call goats. He does not call wolves. He does not call other animals. No, he calls only his sheep to himself. John 10, verses 3 and 4, to him the gatekeeper opens the sheep, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Please notice, Jesus calls his sheep by name. This is not a generic call. This is a specific call. This is not a a generic universal call. This is a specific particular call. I, I still remember the first time I called my wife Lisa on the phone. Like I remember the night that I called her on the phone and I I thought through what I was going to say. And I made sure I had her number dialed into my phone, not somebody else's number. And I called her specifically. It wasn't a general call to everybody in her Bible study. It wasn't a general call to everybody in the church that she was at. It was a specific call to my wife. I called her and she listened and she followed my voice and she was not led astray by the other phone calls that she received. She was listening for that one voice. And when I called her, she came running. And she still comes running every day, right? So I'm just trying to say that this this is an understanding of how specific it is. It's not like God is out there saying, like, everybody come if you want. I don't know who you are, if you're going to come or not. He's like, no, he calls his sheep to himself through the gate. Jesus says in John 10, 7, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. Not a door, not any other door will do. It must be the door. Only the sheep can come through this door. No other animal, no other being. Only sheep who are called by name. And then Jesus lays down his life for who? He lays down his life for the sheep. Look at verse 11. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for every individual in the world. Is that what your Bible says? I hope not, because that's not the teaching of Christ. He says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus does not teach here a universal atonement. He teaches a very particular atonement and purpose for which he came to lay down his life for his sheep. God may have loved the world, But Jesus didn't die for the world. Jesus died for the lives of his sheep. How specific was Jesus' sacrifice? How specific was Jesus' knowledge? It was just as specific as the Father's knowledge of the Son. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know my Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So we're asking the question, does Jesus know his sheep specifically or generically? And I'm saying specifically, and here's why, because the knowledge that Jesus has for his sheep specifically is equated with the same knowledge that the Father has for the Son. You see it there in verse 15? He's like, just as the Father knows me. Question, does the Father know the Son generically? 
Or would you say the Father knows the Son specifically? And he's saying that just like the Father knows me, that same intimate knowledge is how I know my sheep. He doesn't, God doesn't know his Son in part. He knows his Son in whole. God the Father doesn't know his Son superficially. He knows his Son intimately. And in the same way, that's how Jesus knows his own. And that same specificity is clear in the fact that Christ's life was laid down for his sheep specifically. There is a narrowness of range. This is the atonement. This is a definitive deliberation. This has a particular purpose. This atonement is as clear cut as you can get. There is a precise pursuit. There is a meticulous methodology. There is an explicit expression in the atonement of who Jesus came for. So why is it then that some do not believe? Well, the end of chapter 10, verse 26 and 27 says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. People don't believe because they are not among his sheep. Some are left in the pen. Some have been passed over. Some are stubborn in their hearts and they are stuck in their sin and they don't even want out. Please understand, nobody in the world is complaining about being in the world. They love the world. They love their sin. They're addicted to it and they like it and they want to continue it and that is because they love darkness and they love their sin and therefore God has turned them over to their own lusts and some may come near with their mouth and they may honor God with their lips but their hearts are far from him. And so as far as Lazarus is concerned, well, he was a sheep. He was one of Christ's own. Christ called him by name. Lazarus knew Jesus' voice. And when Jesus called with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus got up immediately. Lazarus was led out of the cave. Lazarus came through the door. And Jesus knew exactly who Lazarus was. And Lazarus was granted the ability to respond to the voice of Christ. And Lazarus followed the call. And he did so by grace. Another aspect of the atonement, number three, Jesus loves his own to the end. Loves his own to the end. Check this out, John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to be with the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, look at the last part of verse 1, chapter 13. He loved them to the, what? To the end. Here's what we're saying in this verse. This is what the scripture teaches. This is proving that the atonement was more than potential. It was consequential. There wasn't just a beginning in mind. There was an end in mind. This wasn't just taking a stab at salvation. This was a complete takeover. This is Jesus finishing what he started. This is he who began a good work in you will carry it unto completion. Jesus doesn't do anything halfway. Jesus doesn't offer partial salvation. Redemption is not half-baked. Your debt was either paid for or it wasn't. And if it wasn't, you still owe God some money. And I'm thankful that he paid the debt in full because that's the purpose for which Christ came. And so please note that Lazarus was not made half-alive. He didn't have half a heartbeat. He didn't take half of a breath. He didn't come halfway out of the cave. No, Jesus brought him to life and had him unbound. Jesus raised him up and he set him free. Jesus brought life and he brought vitality into Lazarus. And Jesus gives life and he gives life abundantly. 
There is no small doses of grace. There is more than just a few meager drops of mercy. The water of salvation flows like a fountain. And the Bible says that you will be like a well-watered garden. That there is a mighty rushing river of grace. And this river carries you all the way to heaven. If you don't have that view of the atonement, it's like, well, the atonement goes this far. But it doesn't complete anything because it wasn't for anyone in particular. It was just a generic way to get people who choose to come in to come in but there's placing too much emphasis on mankind and not enough emphasis on the purpose of the atonement Jesus loves his own specifically and he loves them to the very end and the atonement may be limited to those whom God chooses but it isn't cheap and it isn't weak and it's not watered down this atonement is rich and it's strong and it's potent and it carries you all the way from the depths of your sin to the glories of eternal life in heaven with christ it's a beautiful thing this limited particular redemption that we see number four jesus prays for those who have been given to him he prays for those who have been given to him i used to think that jesus came to save the whole world I used to think that Jesus prayed for the whole world, but he did not. Jesus did not pray for the whole world. Please turn to John 17. I remember when I was coming into a more accurate understanding of the doctrines of grace and limited atonement in particular. I actually had a relationship with that pastor I quoted earlier, Terry Johnson, who wrote about Protestantism. He was a pastor in Savannah, Georgia, and I was attending a Baptist church, and he, went, he was the preacher at this Presbyterian church, a Reformed, staunch Calvinist. And one time I was meeting with him and asking questions about Calvinism, and I said, Pastor Johnson, give me, just give me one verse. Give me one verse that teaches limited atonement. And he just kind of looked at me and smiled, and he said, Adam, I'll give you more than one verse. I'll give you a whole chapter. Turn to John 17 and read that chapter. And I remember going home, and I was like, well, I've never heard that before. I went home, and I read John 17, and I'm like, oh, I've never seen that before. Look at John 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that, your son, uh, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, take note here, to give eternal life to all whom... You have given him. So here in these first couple of verses, particularly verse 2, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the Father will glorify the Son by giving him all authority and by giving eternal life to all that the Father has given to the Son. Look at verse 6. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. So he's talking here about a particular group of people. These people that were already yours from eternity past that God elected. These are the same people that were given to the son. And if they've been given to the son, they will walk in that obedience. I mean, Jesus is saying that he has revealed the name of God and salvation to the people that God had given to him out of the world. It does not say that the father gave the son all the individuals of the world and salvation. But rather, he gave him a limited group of people. And the ones whom the Father had given to the Son showed their transformation by obeying God's word. In other words, all the people that the Father gave to the Son would be saved by grace 
And since they've been saved by grace, they would be being sanctified as they're submitting daily to the lordship of Christ and their walk in obedience throughout the rest of their life. Look at John 17, 9. Verse 9, Jesus says, I am praying for them. And I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. How much clearer could it be? Jesus didn't say, I'm praying for the whole world. God, somehow that you would just somehow save the whole world. No, he's like, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm not praying for those who are not in the elect. He said, I'm praying for them. I'm praying for these that you've given to me. These ones are the yours, God. I'm praying for, I'm interceding for them. Look at verses 17 and 19. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus didn't come to die in order to sanctify everyone, but he came to sanctify those that he came to save. And his disciples and every Christian has been sent into the world to live a sanctified life for Christ. And if Jesus came to save the whole world, then the whole world would be sanctified. But Jesus didn't come to save the whole world, nor did he save the whole world, and therefore he did not come to sanctify the whole world, but only those who had been given to him by the Father. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, in this verse, Jesus prays that those who had been given to him by the Father would be with Christ forever. He wants them to see his glory. Jesus desires that a specific group of people would see Jesus and spend eternity with him. Just as God loved Jesus before the foundation of the world, God loved his elect before the foundation of the world. And when we talk about Jesus praying for his elect, how does that work with the story of Lazarus? Well, in John eleven forty two, 42, Jesus prayed to the Father only for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. Jesus never intended to raise everyone in the tomb, just Lazarus. This was not a spur-of-the-moment decision, but a decision that was made before the foundation of the world. The prayer of Jesus in John 11 was a particular prayer for Lazarus. It was limited to only him in its scope. This was a limited grace. This prayer had a specific request. Jesus prayed this prayer on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that God sent Jesus to do his work. And God the Father always hears the prayers of God the Son, and he always answers those prayers precisely in the way of which they have been prayed because Jesus always prays in accordance with the Father's will. And I'm just trying to say, just like the high priestly prayer, John 17 is praying for the sheep, the elect, to come to Christ. This prayer in John 11 is a prayer only for Lazarus to be saved. It's a very specific prayer. Number five, the last Uh, one that we'll share with you this morning. Jesus accomplished salvation when he died on the cross. Look at John 19.30, where Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. This, of course, was when Jesus was on the cross. Jesus is taking his last breaths as he's suffocating, and as he pulled up his body one last time, he says, it is finished. Jesus still had his wits about him, He still knew what he had come to do. He had finished 
his mission. Question, what was Jesus' mission? Did he come to make salvation possible for all people equally? Or had he come to accomplish salvation for his own specifically? What exactly does it is finished mean? Well, I believe that it means exactly what it says. This is not the potential of salvation. This is the completion of salvation. This is not just Jesus saying, I've done all I can do. Now you've got to go out and make a decision for your own. This is not Jesus saying, I hope this works. But you're the ones who determine if it works for you. No, this is Jesus finishing what he started in his mission and finishing in what he started in saving you. There's nothing left to be done. There are no other works in order. There is not an ongoing atonement in the Eucharist. There is not another sacrifice. There is nothing left undone. There is no other event to look to. This is Jesus declaring the fulfillment of his mission and your salvation for all eternity. And in the story of Lazarus, Jesus did not come to make the resurrection of Lazarus possible. Think about how silly that would be. If Jesus had have come to the grave of Lazarus and just said, I'm just going to make this possible. So that if Lazarus wants to come back, he can come back. I'm going to make it possible. No, he came to the tomb on that day to make resurrection happen as a powerful display of saving grace. There, there was no Lazarus might come out of the grave and he might not. There was no let's wait and see what Lazarus does. Jesus came to the grave. Jesus commanded Lazarus to come out and Jesus insisted that they unbind him and let him go. This whole thing is a picture of salvation from the beginning to the end. It's to point to the divinity of Christ and to the salvation that Christ came to accomplish. Lazarus in the tomb is a picture of limited atonement. And just as Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead, he can and he will raise all of those that he calls to himself. Is he calling you this day? You say, well, Adam, I'm all twisted up, man. I don't know if I'm a Calvinist or Arminian. Like I said last time, forget all that for a moment. Is he calling you today? Is Jesus calling you generically? Or is he calling you internally? In this moment, can you see the gospel and the purpose of the atonement in a way that you've never seen it before? And would you answer his call? If he's calling you out today, that means he's changing you. And he's developing in you a desire to follow him and to confess all of your sin. And that you would come running to his voice and you would say, here I am, Lord, save me. I'm a wretched sinner, but I see the beauty of the atonement and I want to come. And if you come today, Jesus will by no means cast you out. He will not turn you away. He will save you all by grace, all through the gospel, that you could be saved by faith this very day if you come to him. How is it illustrated in the, life of La in the life of Lazarus? We've answered these questions already. Number one, Jesus came to the tomb with clear intentions. Wouldn't you say that? He didn't come to the tomb possibly to raise Lazarus, possibly not. No, he came to the tomb with clear intentions. Number two, Jesus will be glorified in accomplishing this resurrection. So Jesus accomplished something at the tomb. And then third, Jesus limited this miracle to one man. He limited it to just this one man, Lazarus. And so as you leave here this morning, we could look at these take-home statements. Jesus did what he came to do. He wasted no time or effort. 
and Jesus is in charge, not fallen man. Here's the deal. If you don't believe in a limited atonement, then you're putting too much responsibility on mankind to make that final choice. And if you do that, what you're really saying is that God's sovereign over everything except man's eternal destiny because the atonement accomplished nothing until man comes walking in. And what I'm saying is that man can't walk in because he's dead in the grave and Jesus calls and he quickens your spirit and he regenerates your soul and he gives life into you and then you see it, then you wake up and you say, yes, I repent, yes, I believe because he loved you first. Limited atonement is nothing to be ashamed of it's nothing to cower over. It's nothing to apologize for. It's a beautiful doctrine of the saving work of Christ. Be blessed by it and be encouraged by it this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive deep again into this doctrine of the atonement of Christ. And Lord, I, I know because I, I, I just know that not all of us view this the same way. And Lord, I, I just want to pray that you would help us to be gracious with one another and kind with one another as we maybe walk through and have conversations this afternoon and this week about this particular topic. It's okay in some ways that we vary on a very challenging doctrine. And yet at the same time, God, I just pray we would see the simplicity and the clarity of hopefully what we've looked at this morning, especially here in the Gospel of John, of the intentionality, the intent, the purpose, the mission that Jesus accomplished. And it would just humble us today, that instead of arguing today, we would just stand amazed at the grace of God, and yet again, we would come to you through prayer today and say, God, why would you save me? Why would you shed your blood for me? I, I'm so undeserving. I'm such a wretch, and yet, God, in your kindness, you've called me out. I, I've heard your voice, and because you've enabled me, I've, I've come, and I've responded all by grace. You love me first, and so I want to spend the rest of my life loving you and adoring these doctrines of, of, of grace that would just stir us up and give us greater confidence in you accomplishing what you came to do and not leaving it up to mankind as the final decider. So God, do a special work of grace in every heart. May this truth cause us to worship you deeper and with more excitement and more vitality that you're a God who accomplishes all that you set your mind out to do. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen.